this is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're very welcome to another edition of Business Impact, the UCD Business School Specialist Podcast. And as the winter starts rolling in, it's just a few weeks away officially, and we've had some announcements at the time of recording this podcast about whether we're going to be indoors, outdoors, or what we're going to be doing. But whatever happens, we are likely to be watching a lot more television and from whatever platform we choose. And that means a lot of these appointment of view programs are going to be talked about. Uh, I won't go through them because there's so many different channels now in the uh, television universe. It would take me quite a lot of time. But different television programs, different television stations, different broadcasters are girding their loins for the winter season ahead. It's very important that they obviously have great polished programs, but it's also very important that they have very polished social media campaigns to accompany them. And we can see that whether it's BBC, RTE, Sky, etc. They're all really trying to drive that second screen experience. And my guest today is going to talk a little bit about that world, uh, how it operates, where it's likely to go in the future, and what makes a good social media campaign in modern media. And that guest is Molly O'Dwyer, who's social media and data lead at RTE. She is indeed also a BCom graduate here from UCD, another good reason for bringing her on. Uh, you're very welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thanks for having me. First of all, we always like to kind of introduce our guests and uh, talk a little bit about their background and their career to date and so on. I know you finished uh, doing the BCom here at UCD. So can you take us a little bit uh, from the journey from there and even maybe even before that as well? I actually did arts first semester the year before commerce and I liked it, but I didn't love it. So I left after one semester and I went to working full time and worked did a lot of work with an amazing guidance counsellor, Mary Early, trying to figure out what, what I really wanted to do. And uh, we landed on the BCom in UCD. So I think when I started the BCom, I probably appreciated it in a way that I wouldn't have had I gone in the first time around. I'd done a course that I liked, but I didn't love. I'd seen what working full time looked like. Um, and so when I got to commerce, I was just hugely excited and I loved it. I loved the kind of the smaller classes, the more interactive lectures. It was just a learning style that really worked for me. And yeah, and I and I loved it when I was there. I did a final year concentration in marketing. And when I graduated, I knew that I wanted to be in, um, in media. I was really interested in television. I wasn't quite sure how to, how to get in, how you get started. It felt like a club and I didn't know how to get an invite. So I had spent a lot of time at Dingle and I'd always wanted to work on other voices. So um, I, I hand wrote a letter to Philip King and Neil O'Connor, the, the couple um, behind it, and uh, made my case as to why they should give me a, a job. And, um, and they very kindly did. Someone who had no experience. I think we're dependent on um, our enthusiasm and people kind of taking chances on us in the early stages are, are very, very important. That was my first job in television. And... I was just hooked. I, I just thought it was the most exciting thing in the world. I was, you know, helping to organize these music shoots in these beautiful locations in West Kerry. And I was just like, oh, OK, this, this is this is where I want to be. Um, so, yeah, I ended up working with them kind of on various seasons after that. But that was really my first introduction to television. Um, there wasn't a lot happening in Ireland economically when I graduated from commerce. And like a lot of my peers, I went to Australia. Um, so I spent a few years there. and. 
that's when I got my kind of, that's when my eyes opened up to the world of digital. I got a job in Fairfax Media, um, working in ad operations. Um, they manage like websites like the Sydney Morning Herald. And so I think, again, enthusiasm and the final year's concentration in marketing really helped to secure that job for me. I mean, obviously, I didn't have a huge amount of experience at that time, but I had an amazing manager there who really took me under her wing and, and really trained me and opened my eyes to all the possibilities of the different careers you could have in digital. Um, so I spent a couple of years there. And when I came back to Ireland, I, I still had that television book. So I went back and I studied um, video production, video and TV production down in Tralee for a year. And over that time, started making online food videos. Um, so I worked with some great companies like Blossna Hair and Food Awards down in Dingle, helping create online and social content for them. And then that's how I started with RTE. I, I started originally as a contributor, hosting cooking segments for kids on Kids TV. <laughs> and so I did that on and off for a few years while I was working in other digital marketing roles, kind of focused on the online video production and then joined RTE full-time then almost six years ago in the Young People's Programs Department as a social media and web coordinator. So looking after their social website and apps. What I find most interesting, Molly, and you're even sort of check, name-checking it there in your answer, is just content, right? So, I mean, yeah. a lot of people think of RTE as producing television content, radio content, um, online content, as in going to your various suite of websites. But what I find interesting about the role you've now come into, and, and you can talk to me a little bit because it is a reasonably new role, is you're producing social media content, the way I see it at mm -hmm. least, um, which is a, a sort of a separate stream that's kind of grown over the last um, four to five years. And I, I'm presuming it's going to expand even further as RTE transforms and evolves over the next few years. But uh, before you get into the meat of that question, tell us a little bit about how you ended up in RG, the, the, the role that you have now. Um, what do you see as being the kind of core planks of the job, etc.? So I started in Young People's as social media and web coordinator, managing the social media, websites and apps. The role I'm in now sits within the marketing department. Uh, I've looked after social media for Tommy Tiernan's show, The Late Late Show, and of course we have coming up very soon, The Late Late Toy Show. Then combined with that, I also went back and trained as a data analyst. So I'm very much into kind of analyzing our social performance, our wider marketing performance, looking at, you know, challenging what we think happened versus what actually happened and, and looking at what we can learn from our performance in that space. So it's it's a dual role. It's, you know, it's creative and it's, it's also analytical. And Molly, we, we hear this um, phrase being used a lot, the second screen experience. Uh, and I suppose it's, it's hinting at, a, at that we consume our media differently now than we did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Can you give our listeners a little bit of idea what is the second screen phenomenon and then sort of how RTE is starting to, you know, more aggressively compete in, in that whole area? I guess there's two phases to how we'd approach the marketing for a TV show. There is the, the brand awareness in, in the run-up to the show where you're trying to create that sense of anticipation and excitement and really remind people about this appointment of you. Um, on the night or, you know, during the show itself, it's what we call a drive to live. And so we're taking content from the show and looking for that really strong opening, these short little snippets that work well as a standalone piece. And we're posting those on various social media platforms. And the idea is that people on their second screen, people who are scrolling on their phone, watching TV, we're trying to get them to change the channel. And so we're using these clips to drive to live, but also we're trying to generate a conversation around the show. So sometimes it's, it's watching the show, but it's also the community and the conversation that happens around it that's half the fun. You look at something like the Eurovision and people are 
engaging with each other and with our content as much as they're watching it. It's a communal experience where people are part of a community chatting and engaging and, and kind of live tweeting it as they go. And this week that we're talking to is an opportune moment to discuss this. The RT Toy Show is coming up in the next few days. So you're, you're the right person to be talking about. How would you develop the sort of momentum behind a show like that? Can, can you just give our listeners an idea of, you know, as the days move in, the kind of activity you'd be involved in, the meetings you'd be attending, the kind of th- what, what success would look like to you and, and the team you work with? Um, well, the Toy Show is a beast. You know, it's last year it was the second most watched TV show after Leo Varadkar's address. But we'll, we'll be going for the top spot this year. There's different parts to the marketing campaign for it. So we start about 16 weeks out and we'll be working with promos, with press, with the producers themselves. And we'll come up with the campaign concept and all of the different strategies, whether it's email or social, radio, press, they'll all tie back into that core concept that's led from promos. So we'll take that TV promo and we'll, we'll repurpose it for social. But that's just one element. With social, we really need bespoke content that works specifically for that platform. Traditionally, TV promos don't drive a huge number of interactions on social. The Toy Show one is an exception and always does really well. But people want to see content that's designed for that platform with that platform in mind. So for instance, yesterday I was um, producing a shoot with Ryan and some kids and we were creating kids and toy show training. So these are kind of less polished videos where we have a toy show cabin set and Ryan is interacting with the kids and just having a bit of fun doing different challenges. And so we'll cut those into around 30 second snippets and we'll have them going out on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week. By the time Friday comes around, we'll have the theme announcement on Friday morning. We'll have some press activity and then we'll have the show that night. So we'll have a huge amount of content. But the challenge is how are you going to create content in the run up to the show to start to build that sense of anticipation and excitement. And then on the night, we'll be doing that, as you mentioned earlier, driving to live where we'll be having people in their second screens uh, engaging with content that's repurposed from the show itself. Um, But in the run up, we'll be sharing these videos that are shot bespoke for social on on the platforms. And, And even within that, we'll have separate content for TikTok than we will for Instagram. It's not a one size fits all. Um, the videos for TikTok will be completely separate to what we would have shared on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. So social is this big umbrella term that encapsulates a lot of different platforms and a lot of different types of content. One of the things that intrigues me, Molly, is this is a very dynamic, unpredictable environment. Um, yeah. Talk about chat shows in particular, if they're going out live, obviously, if they're pre-recorded, life is, is, is a different thing completely. But I know you've worked on Tommy Tiernan's chat show and, and, and other similar type vehicles. So, I mean... Obviously, you want to react to what's happening and what the guest is saying. How does that work where you have a guest who suddenly does or says something unpredictable or creates what is a real kind of mm-hmm. media soundbite meme type of potential item? I mean, how, how do you get on top of that and how quickly can you get stuff out there? I've developed a very strong sense of editorial judgment. So you have to be really careful. A guest might say something, but you don't want to take it out of context. There might have been something earlier or later in the interview that really changes the context of what that person is saying. So you have to be really careful that you're maintaining the integrity of the interview and what the interviewer was saying. This is the negative side of social. I have to be conscious of the guest. Um, Certain items, when they go out on social, the guest is more likely to get negative commentary around that. So while you don't want to control the narrative in any way, shape or form, I will always be mindful as if a guest is tagged in a post, how that might affect them. But I've been doing it so long now, I'm very trained to know 
when I hear that clip. You want a really strong opening. People are scrolling on their phones. You need to grab them in the first three seconds. A clip where the the main event happens at the end of the video, that's not going to work on social. You need to open strong and it needs to be a standalone piece that I said, as I said, doesn't take anything out of context. And so say on the Late Late Show, I'll be watching the show real time, same same time as everyone else. And I'm trying to take those sound bites, trying to get those clips both to drive people to live, but also to generate press, of course. And then I'll get that out as quickly as possible. It's quite a convoluted technological process, actually. I have to go through a lot of systems to get that clip. It it used to be simpler, but that's just the software we're using at the moment. But obviously, I'm trying to get that out as quickly as possible because you want to capitalize on that conversation that's happening around that time, particularly on Twitter. Yeah, because um, I notice a, a lot of people do their own DIY clipping now. I notice people just put their phone up to their TV screen and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's low quality. It's not like the, the kind of stuff you guys are doing. But so I can see why you want to get out there because the, the, the public almost kind of um, transmit these things quicker than anyone else if they want to. It's our show. It's our content. There are social platforms. We need to be really fast and be the first ones to get it out there. So, you know, that's part, that's part of the job that we that we do that and we do that quickly. We actually have two people who work on, on the Late Late on a Friday night on that job clipping uh, and taking those clips for social so that we can be fast and so that we can get stuff out there well but you also don't want to put out too much uh, you know if you if you put out too much content you're nearly it's called like cannibalizing your own content you're not giving it a, a clip a chance to perform before you've put another one on top of it and kind of pushed it down the feed so you have to be really you have to really curate what it is you want to put out there um you you can't put out everything you know every strong moment um so it's you have to think carefully about that as well but i think we're instinctively kind of know when we when we hear the clip we're, we know that that's it that's the one we need to get out now one of the reasons we brought you on the podcast molly is to talk about what success looks like in broadcasting and what success looks like in social media broadcasting when you put the two together and, and, you know, the problem is it's a very creative world broadcasting. There's a lot of ideas out there. There's a lot of different types of programming. Some are aiming mm-hmm. like a chat show at a mass audience. Others are very niche cultural programs that are not aiming at a mass audience. They're, they're aiming at a very segmented audience and that's their whole purpose. Yeah. So how do, how do you decide like um, what's been a success? In terms of social media, there's so much analytics. You can end up drowning in, in the sea of likes, shares, uh, unique v- visitors, you know, there really is a heck of a lot of stuff you can get um, stuck into. So you, you've been very much about the forefront in Orti of looking to make data-driven decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your perspective on that? I was always really passionate about effective campaign measurement. I was, you know, while I've worked in creative industries, I've always been a, a numbers person as well. Um, so I went back a couple of years ago and did a HDIP in science and data analytics. And as part of my course, I did all of my projects and, and my final year project in social data. And I worked with an amazing analyst, um, Ben Norland in RTE, who worked on a lot of these projects with me. And so I guess we took time to really investigate different data sources and to try and actually answer that question, what does success look like for us? You know, what can we measure? What do we want to measure? There's so much data out there that, you know, often people are asking for more and more data, but it's like, well, actually, what question are you trying to answer? And for for me, it was I wanted us to be able to look at our campaigns relative to one another, look at how they were performing against one another, look at how they were performing against the page itself. How does that rank against our competitors? And so I went and and took historical data and created KPIs for us that were grounded in past performance. And so we were able to, you know, it did well, it didn't do so well. We could identify whether something was a low, medium or a high performing post. And whether it was a low, medium or high performing campaign. And I guess that has allowed us to be 
much more agile into responding when things aren't working and also to jump on it when things are, you know, identifying opportunities for paid social. Um, and yeah, so, so I did a lot of, I guess, a lot of research to begin with um, and then kind of setting KPIs grounded in historical performance and, and then trying to get that message out there, trying to create a culture where people are, yeah, as you said, data, data driven um, and approaching things with a more data orientated mindset. And also, you, you you could have a program that does very well in just strict viewer terms, but doesn't do well in social media terms and vice versa, right? They are slightly different, if connected, audiences. So, you know, each person will come in. Obviously, sometimes RT tends to be, unfairly in my view, judged just so, solely on the universal numbers, you know, just, just the total amount of watches at the peak hour, etc. cetera, uh, you know, which is, is a criterion, but it's not the only criterion. Equally, you know, you don't want to, you know, you'll be criticized at times for, for clickbaiting, you know, sort of, sort of driving audiences just to kind of get raw numbers, not looking at the the, the quality of the programming. So it, it sometimes already feels it, it can't win a little bit in that. So I'm sure even internally, different stakeholders have different data points they want to look at. And then other people will say, no, this is the one that says what we think. So it's a hard one to navigate, isn't it? It's just from your point of view, as the producer of the data or the person who, who kind of puts the puts the shape on it. Yeah, it is. But, but also... Organic social data, you're very limited in what you actually can measure. So, you know, when you look at, um, you know, massive marketing campaigns or like paid social, there's so many different things to measure. They're so You can get so targeted in your campaigns. They can get so nuanced. With organic socials, when I say organic social, I mean, we're posting content natively to platforms. We're not putting spend behind that. We're not going through ads manager. These aren't targeted ads. So there's actually... In, in a way, it's a simpler data set. So we look at things like the, re- the reach of a post or the number of interactions with that post. In a way, organic data, it's not that it's simpler, but there, there are less metrics to measure. And so what I've been trying to do is, I guess, an education piece as much as anything else so that we're all speaking the same language. Like interactions and engagements are two different metrics, but people use those terms interchangeably. So I've been trying to create a system where we're all working off the same hymn sheet. So we're talking about campaigns comparatively. Um, so I've designed, say, dashboards so that everyone can look at their campaigns and they can tweak them as to, you know, everyone will have different objectives or you might have slightly different KPIs, but that we're all, the fundamental principles of what we're measuring are the same and that they're done in the same way. And so that allows us to look at things comparatively and get a much more holistic view of what's working and not, work, not working than when we were all working in silos and perhaps using different measurement styles. And that's not just for the marketing team, that's the wider kind of marketing reports across the organization. So I think that puts you in a much more powerful position. You know, it's, there's a higher level of accountability, of course, but being, identified, being able to identify when something's not working gives you the opportunity to change it. If you're only seeing that at the end of a campaign, there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas if you're able to see that quickly and you're, during the campaign, you're much more agile to respond. Yeah, it must be hard to, to, to know where to categorize a viewer now. You know, somebody who's got a television in front of them that they're staring straight at and they have an iPhone in their other hand and they're going between the television screen, they're going onto Twitter or Facebook, they're flicking through various streams there, they're watching the program, but then they're going back to something else on Twitter. You know, <laughs> how do you count this person anymore? I can't imagine that simple. No, it isn't at all. And with, like, with the landscape at the moment, you know, the iOS update, even with paid social, the attribution landscape has changed dramatically in the last six months. So you're looking at much more aggregated measurement. So it's it's constantly changing. We do we have reports that are correlative. So we'll look at, I'm working really closely now with insights so that I'm feeding our social stats into them so that we can start to look for correlations 
as to how something has performed on social and how something has performed on TV or on the player. But there are so many other variables that are impacting that, that we have to be careful about the kind of assumptions we make based on that data. We have to be really clear, this is just correlative data. We're looking at how these things performed and we're trying to communicate better so that we can identify trends or similarities to see if there's any opportunities we can jump on. But again, we're looking at these things. It's hard to connect the dots. And one of the areas that you look for that are a sign of success is people who did not start watching a particular program at the beginning, but you have managed to shift them over during the program. So via social, they've seen something or something piqued their interest or everyone in their family or friends, circle of friends started talking about something or uh, texting each other about it. So so the kind of the extra in-time viewers that you can shift over, that that's an important one, isn't it? The Insights team will look at the Nielsen data in, in quarterly segments, I think. You know, we look at two metrics now. It's it's not just the audience share, but it's the, the numbers in thousands. I, w- I would love if we had a data science team that could look at, you know, when those numbers increase, what was happening on social at the same time and to try and look for correlations and, and, and match up the data. But um, We're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. No, no, not quite. Uh, I wanted to also talk to you about uh, make this conversation broaden out a little bit from, from, from your work in RT. And that's how we're all using social media at the moment. Uh, the changes. First of all, if you, if you had any um, insight for our listeners on TikTok, it's come on the scene in the last two to three years very intensively. They now have an office, a big office in Dublin, a big operation here. Yeah. It's growing. We've all seen the videos. There's a particular type of content that TikTok does very well. How are you guys using that? Do you see it becoming bigger? Is it elbowing out some of the other platforms or is it just sort of adding to the mm-hmm. adding to the kind of a, there's a suite of options out there for social media users? TikTok is, yeah, it's huge and it's particularly huge with the younger audience. And it's, it's a challenge for social media managers who are already stretched with with resource, which most social media managers are, because there's so many elements. Um, there's so many elements to the job, um, because TikTok is, is a completely different type of content. So, with the Late Late Show, for example, I'll take a clip and I'll repurpose it in different formats for different platforms. So, for Twitter, for Facebook, and Instagram. Instagram particularly will will do kind of Instagram stories or behind the scene, scenes with Ryan and guests. So it, they're, they're different types of content, whereas TikTok is, is completely different. There is these, you know, music driven trends and it's not something you're repurposing elsewhere. It's not something you're repurposing your clips from. You're creating TikToks. You're not repurposing content. And so it's a, it's a completely different way of thinking. So we aren't in the space as much as, as we'd like to be yet. Um, the Late Late Show, uh, two of the team members on that have been working on the TikTok account for the show. So yesterday, for instance, when we had the toy show shoot, creating our content, the TikTok content we shot from that will be completely different to the content that we'll take for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook, for YouTube. So yeah, so it's quite a different platform to the others, but it's it's huge growth. Yeah. And particularly, as I said, with with younger with younger audiences. Now, Molly, I've asked you a lot of very broad questions, but I'm going to make it a little, a little bit more challenging even further in the last few minutes of this conversation is a lot of people listening here will be consumers of Ortiz programs, but they may work in companies and organizations of their own. They may be asked to operate a social media platform. We still get these very strange advertisements, I find anyway, where somebody's asked to apply for a completely different job and then is told, you know, as a kind of a writer, an add-on, they're told, will you also manage our social media account, our accounts plural? <laughs> it's probably the only area of activity in the world that that, that happens. But anyway, that's, that's a, a wider societal issue. But 
what what kind of advice would you have for somebody who's uh you know an, an SME or a middle manager who has the social media account? They throw out the odd tweet now and again just to keep their boss happy because they feel they have to. Have you got any kind of uh, tips or advice for just generally more effective social media use, uh, seeing as you're in, in this exact space and, and dealing with it every day? Yeah. In reference to the um, social being an add-on to people's jobs, it's very easy to do social badly. But you want to hire a professional if you want it to be done professionally. So I think it, it can get added on with people maybe who don't understand this, the scope and scale of what's required. And um, to do it well, I guess I'd start with thinking, who's your audience and where are they? So what platforms are they likely to be on? Who are you speaking to? I'd much rather do one platform well than try and set up multiple accounts and, and be doing all of them badly. So I'd say start with one account where your audience is most likely to be and try and do that one well. And you, you can always build out from there. What's your objective? You know, why are you on social? What's your business objective? Are you trying to drive subscriptions? Are you trying to raise awareness? Are you trying to drive sales? You know, even though social is a place to be more informal and you can uh, push the boundaries a little and it, it's a fun space, you also want to be clear that what the work that you're doing on social is aligned with your overall business objectives. I'd say listen to your audience. We can spend ages on a piece of content that we think is amazing and we'll post it and, and it doesn't do well. And then we can do something that was, you know, a last minute idea and it can, you know, do huge numbers. So pay attention to what's working and what's not. Listen to your audience because they'll tell you when they like something and you'll see when they don't. They'll tell you when they don't. So pay attention to your stats and look at what's working and what's not. I'd say watch your tone. Think about who you want to be online. How does your business speak? You don't want to be overly corporate or overly business-like. If you can be informal in a way that's you know in line with what makes sense for your business, uh, think about how you speak, what kind of tone you have online. An example of one business I think is doing really well is Studio Minty. It's a pre-loved clothes site. And so she's on Instagram and there's kind of a number of things she's doing. So she'll showcase um, the different kind of pre-loved clothes that are going to be going on sale on her website that week. And they go on sale on the website at two specific times, the same time on two days every week. So She's driving people to her website to purchase the clothes that she's showcasing on Instagram. But at the same time, there's also this education piece about fast fashion and and what goes into making our clothes and the impact that's having on the environment. And, you know, even when I use the word education, it sounds kind of serious, but actually the content is really playful and fun and funny. So it's got this dual purpose of driving to the website, but educational. But at the same time, it's building this whole community of people who have similar interests. And yeah, they're really creative content. Now, I imagine they spend a huge amount of time on social media. So don't underestimate the amount of resource and time it's going to take. You know, be realistic about how much content you're going to be able to make and schedule it and um, put it in, you know, set aside some time in the week, reschedule your posts for the week and then just pay attention when they go live. If people are interacting with it and respond to people's comments, but it, it is a big undertaking to do it really well. So set yourself realistic goals um, and, and build from there. Molly, thank you for those tips. They're, they're very sensible. As you say, don't try and do too much is, is almost the summary. Do do the little bit well at the start and build out from there yeah. is what I'm picking up from your conversation. Focus on quality, not quantity. Perfect. Listen, I want, don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you have a busy week ahead with Toy Show and other programs coming into the Christmas period. Thanks for the advice for everyone listening. Thanks for going through your career um, journey to date. It's been an interesting one and we'll get even more interesting as we get more platforms, more viewers, more traffic. It'll be busier, but it'll be very enjoyable. Thank you very much, Molly O'Dwyer, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Emmett.